Daniel chapter 7. We live in a culture that is fascinated with disaster movies. Have you noticed that a lot of movies that have come out in the past 40 years are these end-of-the-world apocalyptic movies that are big on disasters and the end of the world. And, and obviously this is Hollywood theology, not what we get from the Bible. But, but think about these disaster apocalyptic movies. They're, they're big at the box office. They've made a lot of money. I mean, you can go all the way back to the year I was born, 1971, with the Charlton Heston movie Omega Man. Or some of you may remember the Mad Max movies, Road Warrior with Mel Gibson, The Apocalypse. Remember that made-for-TV movie in the 80s? The day after. Then there was Armageddon with Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. And then there was The Day After Tomorrow. And then how many of you seen 2012? Everything's going to happen in 2012. Or there's The Book of Eli. It seems like our culture is obsessed with the end of the world as we know it. There's that famous song by R.E.M., right? It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. You see... Televangelists, self-proclaimed prophets are always predicting when the end is going to be. When is the last day? When is Christ going to come back? And people get their charts and their graphs and they get their predictions. And and this is nothing new. People throughout the ages have always been predicting when Christ will come back. As a matter of fact, in 115 AD, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, wrote this, The last times are upon us. 115 AD. In 180 A.D., Church Father Irenaeus predicted that 500 A.D. would be the date for the end. Spanish monk Beatus said it would be in 800 A.D. On December 31st, 999, okay, before the millennium, thousands of people thronged to the old St. Peter's Basilica and weeped because they thought the end was going to come when it switched over to the year 1000. Did you know in 1501, Christopher Columbus predicted that the end would be in 1656? 1697, Cotton Mather predicted the end would come. And then when the date passed, he chose 1716. And when that passed, he chose 1736. In 1910, the arrival of Halley's Comet sparked prediction of the end. Some of you may have been alive in 1938 when Orson Welles had his famous radio program, The War of the Worlds. Many people thought the end was going to come then. And then you've got my famous televangelist friend, not my personal friend, but... Jack Vanapy. If you know anything about Jack Vanapy, he chose 1976 as the year of the rapture. Then he changed it to 1992. Then he changed it to 1996. If you watch him today on TV, he's predicting 2012. So when 2012 comes and it hasn't happened, we'll see what next date he picks. In 1988, you had the famous book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. I'm wondering where that book is on many people's shelves. 88 Reasons. And then there's a guy named Harold Camping. He's a cult leader who's predicting May 21st of this year being the end of the world. Now, why am I ranting and raving about the end of the world? We get to Daniel chapter 7 through Daniel chapter 12. This is where things get weird. This is where things may get a little confusing. This is where things get a little complicated. You see, chapters 1 through 6, if you can remember that far back when we were doing those, those were pretty straightforward. Daniel in the lion's den. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the writing on the wall, pretty straightforward stories. Now we're being launched into a new type of literature, things that are called apocalyptic in nature. And so what I want us to do is just read Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be going for the rest of the the book of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6, historical stories. Daniel's chapter 7 through 12 we get into some end times visions and things of that nature. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel saw dreams and visions. Before we begin to go into Daniel chapter 7, I want to just briefly describe to you what is called apocalyptic literature. Because we're going to be looking at apocalyptic literature. Now you may ask, well, what is apocalyptic literature? It comes from the word apocalypse. Apocalypse is a Greek word where we get the word revelation. It means an uncovering, an unfolding. And so we're getting into a a new type of genre here, very similar to the book of Revelation. So if you like Revelation you're going to like this part of Daniel. Let me give you some descriptions of apocalyptic literature so we can kind of, just kind of look at where we're going. It usually involves a vision. A vision of the end of the age. A vision of the very last days. And it always involves a cosmic conflict. There's this huge cosmic conflict between good and evil, between the forces of God and the forces of Satan, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. And then there's heavenly scenes, Scenes where things are going on up in heaven. There's earthly scenes. Sometimes these are going on at the same time. It just depends on which camera angle you're looking at. So you've got things going on in heaven, things going on in earth. Then, usually at the end of the age, there's a time of consummation where God ushers in a time of peace, where justice wins out. And then this drama usually unfolds through weird imagery. Beasts numbers, weird things start emerging that you kind of have to try to figure out what's going on in these visions. But you can get bogged down in all of that. But the main purpose of apocalyptic literature is this. For the Christian, for the believer, it's not meant to bring fear, but to bring hope. It's meant to show us God's sovereignty over history. Not to be despair, not to be afraid. Sometimes I know children start, when we start talking about the end times, some people get a little nervous. They get a little scared, a little antsy. As Christians, it should give us hope. So, what we see through the rest of Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are apocalyptic in nature. Visions of cosmic um, battles, imageries, beasts, things like that. And so Daniel chapter 7 really stands as the center of the book of Daniel, and it sets the stage for what's going to happen throughout the rest of the, chap- uh, the, the book. Now, one of the things that we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 7 is a switch back between things going on in heaven, things going on on earth. Back to things going on in heaven, back to things going on in earth. That's very, that's very, um, th- that's, that's very common in apocalyptic literature. And so what I want us to do here is to read Daniel chapter 7, and there's really four parts to Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to see four specific things. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. And we're going to see the first thing that we see here. Gruesome beasts on the earth. This is an earthly scene. Things going on on the earth, 
gruesome beasts. So let's read Daniel 7, 2-8. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, and its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Gruesome beasts from the earth. This is an earthly scene. Now, where do these beasts come from? Where do they emerge? The scripture says they emerge from the sea. In apocalyptic literature and also in Revelation and in Old Testament thinking, the sea represents chaos, evil, a cauldron of confusion. Anytime you see something emerging from the sea, it's usually meant it's to be evil. So these beasts come from the sea. And then there's some scholarly debate about the identity of these four beasts. And so I'm going to take, uh, my take on the four beasts is usually what the conservative evangelical scholars believe. And so let me tell you what I believe these four beasts represent. Now, we can't be dogmatic, but most historians, most theologians uh, look at these beasts and look at the symbolism related to it, and they can identify who these four beasts are. The first beast that we see here is got a lion with eagle's wings. This represents Babylon. Babylon. If you go to history, if you go to archaeology, you can see from Babylon's culture, the two main images of Babylon were of a lion and an eagle. And actually in some of the ruins of Babylon, they discovered archaeological evidence of these winged lions. So the first beast is Babylon, the, the beast that was there when Daniel was taken into exile, Babylon. Okay, you got the second gruesome beast. It's a bear tearing up flesh in its mouth. It's kind of up on its side. It represents the second empire to come after Babylon, Medo-Persian. The Medes and the Persians, one empire. The Medes and the Persians. Also, Daniel was alive during this reign of this kingdom. Okay, the third gruesome beast. Okay, it gets kind of grosser. A four-headed leopard with four wings. This represents Greece. Greece was the next kingdom on the horizon. Now, why wings? Wings represent the lightning speed in which Alexander the Great conquered the known world. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about Greece and Alexander the Great when we get to chapter 8. Why four heads? We'll talk about this next week. The kingdom of Greece was divided into four kingdoms after Alexander the Great died. Now, these four, three, first three beasts represent things from the animal kingdom, right? Bears, lions, eagles, leopards. It's something that you can kind of be familiar with when you go to a zoo. 
But you get to the fourth beast, and it's different. It's terrifying. It's dreadful. It's exceedingly strong. It has iron teeth. What Daniel sees is not PG-13, but R-rated when it comes to its gruesomeness. This is a creature that defies any type of zoological category. He doesn't really know exactly what, what to think of this. It is just exceedingly strong. It's got metallic iron teeth. Who is this fourth beast? The Roman Empire. Rome. And who comes from this Roman Empire? This little horn. Obviously, horns represent power. When you go back to Revelation, when you look at Daniel, this idea of a horn, not a horn, but a, more of a, like a horn type thing, represents power. And there's this little horn. This little horn emerges from the Roman Empire speaking great things. Who in the world is this little horn? It's none other than what the Bible calls the end times antichrist. What Paul calls the man of sin. What Revelation calls the beast. There will come a man at the end of the age who will emerge as this powerful man of sin, the antichrist, the beast. This is who Daniel sees. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3 through 4, we see Paul's description of this man. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, I don't want us to lose the force for the trees here. Okay, I'm not going to get out my charts and graphs and get all complicated. I want to just explain something to you. It's safe to say that these four kingdoms represent literal kingdoms in history. Babylon, Medes and Persians, Greece, Rome. But we can also look at this as symbolic of an unfolding in every age that we've been alive up until the very end. There may not be specific, you know, Greece and and Medes and Persians now, but we do live in an age of gruesome beasts. And eventually there will be that final beast probably from Rome, or personified similar to Rome, where there will come an Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. And so what we see here, first of all, that Daniel sees are these gruesome beasts on the earth. It's an earthly scene. These beasts coming out of the sea, this little horn. Okay, secondly... The second thing we see, there's a huge juxtaposition because the first thing Daniel sees are these gruesome beasts, but the second thing he sees is he goes up to a heavenly scene. He sees the glorious throne room of heaven. Not these gruesome beasts on the earth, but the glorious throne room of heaven. So let's keep reading Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 14, and let's see what Daniel sees next, a heavenly scene. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, 
and books were opened. And I then looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you think, think things aren't bad enough for Daniel, he sees God, the Father, the Ancient of Days, clothed in white, seated on a throne with fire coming out of the throne, chariots of fire, probably like similar to Ezekiel. Now, let's not press this literalistically. Some people look at this and think this is where we get the idea of God as a white-haired guy up in heaven. Let's think of the symbolism behind white. Now, first of all, what is God doing? He's seated on a throne. If you go back to Revelation, throne is the major motif in the whole book of Revelation. God is seated on his throne. Why is God sitting? Because God's in charge. Is God running around worried about these beasts? Is God wringing his hands in desperation? I don't know what's going to happen in the world. Is God nervous? Is God trying to wonder if the evil's going to win out? No, God is seated because he's sovereign. There's no panic. There's no panic at all. The irony is this little horn, this Antichrist, is spewing out all these blasphemies, and God's just sitting there waiting for judgment. God is seated in all sovereign majesty and power. No panic. Now, he's wearing white clothing and white hair. Do we press this literally, or do we look at the symbolism behind white? White is a symbol of purity. White is a symbol of holiness. God is absolutely holy, as we, as we saw earlier today. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is reigning in perfect righteousness and holiness, and around his throne are fiery flames. And so when you go back to Revelation chapter 4, I encourage you to do that. You see a lot of the same imagery, because Revelation chapter 4 is the throne room of heaven. Here in Daniel 7, you've got the throne room of heaven. You see a lot of the same imagery coming from Jan- Revelation 4 and Daniel 7. And so God's on his throne, absolute holiness, fires coming out of the throne, chariots of fire, and then books are opened. Does that sound familiar to you? Books being opened in judgment? Revelation 20, 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a scene of God in all of his majesty being the judge of the universe. And notice what happens. In verse 11, the little horn, the Antichrist, the man of sin, is killed and his body is destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. If you go back to Revelation chapter 19, 
you see this same thing happening. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now we come to the most amazing part of Daniel. Really the key issue in Daniel we come to in verses 13 and 14. Because what Daniel sees here is none other than Jesus Christ himself in all of his glory and splendor. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Jesus almost always referred to himself as the son of man. And so what I believe is happening here is that you've got Jesus, the resurrected Christ, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he's ascending back up to heaven, he's being presented before God the Father, and God the Father is going to endow Jesus with all authority and power and majesty because of what he has accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. When Jesus was arrested in Mark chapter 14, 61 and 62, notice what Jesus says when when the priest was asking him a question. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's what got Jesus arrested and wanted to be killed for claiming to be God. And what does God give Jesus? Verse 14. To him, to Jesus, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, not just for the Jews, but to all peoples and nations and language, that they should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel sees these gruesome beasts of the earth. Then he sees the throne room of heaven. He sees God the Father in all of his glory and splendor. Then he sees Jesus in all of his glory and splendor. And notice what it says in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Well, obviously, Daniel. If you've seen Jesus and the Father and these gruesome beasts, you are going to be alarmed. So we have a earthly scene, gruesome beasts. We have a heavenly scene, glorious throne room. But then we go back to an earthly scene, growing opposition on the earth growing opposition daniel wants to know what's the meaning of this what's going on here and so let's continue reading verses 15 and following as for me daniel my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me i approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this so so daniel wanted to know what's going on so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying, its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things. And it seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. 
Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And he shall like to think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Daniel wants to know the meaning of what's going on. So he asks one of these angels, tell me what's going on. And the angel says, there's going to be three kingdoms that are going to rise. There's going to be the fourth kingdom. And that's the one that Daniel's really interested in, this fourth kingdom. But notice verse 18. It's very important. Verse 18 gives us hope. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. We shall have the kingdom. We are the saints of the Most High. We don't need to fear these gruesome beasts. We don't need to fear what's going to happen. We have an unshakable kingdom. And then notice verse 21. The little horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Growing opposition. Now, whether it's an end times antichrist or whether it's opposition now, the saints of the Most High God are always in the crosshairs of Satan and his attacks. And notice what happens in verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. He shall wear out the saints. That's a pretty good translation. It really means he will persecute. He will bring hostility against the saints. And notice what he'll do. He'll think to pass laws and change the times. I don't know exactly what this means. But it could mean this. There will come a day when this one man will try to change laws worldwide to make the worship of Jesus Christ punishable and repercussions very extreme. He will think that he's going to bring oppression, persecution against the saints of God. He's going to try to change laws. He's going to do everything in his power to blaspheme God, to go against God, to exalt himself as God, to be against the saints of God, to wear them out. We see this happen in Revelation chapter 17. Think about the imagery we just saw. Ten horns, ten kings, a little horn speaking blasphemies against God. Let's look at Revelation chapter 17, 12 through 14. It'll be on your screen. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, (laughs) this is where it gets weird. They shall have this for times, times, and half a times. Depending on what camp you land, you have a whole theology based upon that. So I'm not going to quibble about what times, times, and half a times. Is it a literal three and a half years in the middle of a literal seven-year tribulation? Or is it symbolic of an indefinite period of time of persecution? I'm not going to go down that path this morning because we could be here all day talking about the dispensational view, the covenant view, the amillennial, all those different views. Either way you slice it, here's what I want you to understand. Persecution will always be throughout the ages. 
Some more intense, some less intense, some places of the world more intense, some places less intense. But until Christ comes back, there will be opposition. And I believe up until the very end, there's going to be an extreme time of persecution under this man of sin who's going to want to persecute God's church. Listen to Revelation 13, 5 through 8. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Does this sound familiar to what Daniel saw? And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So there's going to be an end-time beast. There's going to be an end-time antichrist. There's going to be an end-time time of persecution. But there's going to be persecution in every generation. It just has different faces. We live in the age of beasts right now. Whether it's the face of Kim Jong-il in North Korea, whether it's the face of Osama bin Laden, whether it's the face of AIDS and poverty and genocide and slavery, whatever type of totalitarian nation is out there of communism, there are beasts alive and well in our world today. And Daniel saw it. There's going to be beasts at the very end. There's beasts now. There are gruesome beasts on the earth. Should we expect persecution? Should we expect hostility? Yes, but should this make us panic? Should it make us feel defeated? Should we just wave the white flag and say, you know what? The world's getting worse. I'm depressed. I'm panicked. I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen to our nation, to our government, to our economy. Are we supposed to be running around as Christians being scared at all this? No. Because we get to the very last issue that Daniel sees. The very last thing Daniel sees is not the earth. It goes back up to heaven. That's where he wants our eyes to be fixed in the final passages of this chapter. So the fourth thing we see is the greatness of the kingdom of God. You've got the gruesome beasts. You've got the glory of the throne room. You've got the growing opposition. Now you see the greatness of the kingdom of God. This chapter ends with hope. So let's look at verses 26 and 27 and 28. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to whom? The people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The greatness of the kingdom. God is holding court here. It's a a heavenly vision. God's in control. God is sovereign. God is absolutely on his throne. And things look grim here on earth. Things look like we're losing the battle. Things look like uh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Things are going from bad and worse. And Daniel reminds us, no, that may be what we see around us, but God is on his throne. Christ has conquered. We are his people. We are receiving an unshakable kingdom. Should we be afraid? Should we be scared? No, because God is in control. And one of the purposes of apocalyptic literature is to bring us hope, not despair. If you are a non-believer, this should scare you to death. If you are a Christian, this should bring you great hope. That's the point of apocalypse leisure. Scare non-Christians, give hope to believers. That's just the way it is. If you're not a Christian, this stuff should scare you. If you're a Christian, this shouldn't scare you. This should give you great hope. 
We will never need to fear evil. We will never need to fear that somehow God's going to lose. Will we suffer? Yes. Will we experience persecution? Yes. Will we experience opposition? Yes. Will there be tribulation? Yes. Will we go through it? I don't know. Talk to me someday and we'll talk about your end times views. All I know is this. God is in control. We don't need to be afraid. And where should our eyes always be fixed? Should our eyes be fixed on this gruesome beast of the world or should our eyes be fixed on the glorious throne room of heaven? You know, you can get all bogged down with the Bible prophecy. It's exciting to talk about Bible prophecy, isn't it? You have a prophecy conference, somebody comes in with their charts and graphs and and everybody gets all excited and they get their newspapers out and and everybody's wanting to know the, the mark of the beast and all this kind of stuff and you can lose the force for the trees and forget to realize that in all the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter because God is in control. Do you know what a pan millennialist is? Someone who believes it's going to pan out in the end. God's going to pan it out because he is the absolute sovereign. He's won the battle. Christ has won the battle on the cross. He's won the battle through his resurrection. He's coming back and he's going to win the battle then. Christ is victorious. As Christians, we never need fear the end times because Christ is on his throne. Turn with me briefly to 2 Thessalonians. I want you to see something. This is a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. That's what apocalyptic literature does. It gives warning to non-believers. It gives promises to believers. If you are a non-believer, be scared. If you are a believer, be encouraged. I don't know of any other way to slice it. That's just the way the Bible does it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. After Paul talks about this man of lawlessness, after Paul talks about this beast, this little horn, whoever you want to identify him as, the Antichrist, and by the way, there are many antichrists that are on the scene. There's one end times antichrist, but the Bible says there's been many. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 and following. And then, and then, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. That's awesome. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. What is repeated three times there? The truth. They refused to believe the truth. They were condemned for not believing the truth. You were saved because you believed the truth. In the end, it is a battle for truth. Satan wants to lie. He's the father of lies. He's lied from the very beginning. The beast of the earth, the antichrists of the earth, they are always going to be on the side of falsehood. They're going to pervert truth. They're going to pervert justice. They're going to do everything in their power to have the battle over truth. And why are people not being saved? Because they refused to believe the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the gospel. The truth is God's word. But something has happened to us who have believed the truth. Why do you believe the truth and other people don't believe the truth? What makes you so special that somehow you've gotten the truth? 
Is it because you're smarter than other people? Is it because you're more spiritually sensitive than other people? Is it because of your good deeds, your church attendance, all these things you do? What caused you to believe the truth? Well, Paul tells us, because God chose you to. Verse 13, God chose you as first fruits to believe it. God worked that grace into your eyes. God opened your eyes. God opened your heart. When that grace came to you, it was irresistible and you could do nothing but believe the truth. Because when your eyes have been opened to the greatness of Jesus, you can't help but see his beauty and believe the truth when God does a work in your heart and comes and invades your life and comes and opens your eyes and brings the Holy Spirit to you. You can't help but fall on your knees and bend down and worship because your your eyes have been opened. You see, we talk a lot around here at Emmanuel Baptist Church about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Talk a lot about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we should. That's the gospel. That's the heartbeat of who we are. But I'm afraid sometimes we may not talk enough about the return of Jesus. We don't talk a lot about the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. Why should we talk about the second coming of Jesus? There's a lot of reasons, but there's one, there's one main reason. It is a strong motivation for us to stay faithful. It is a strong motivation for us to persevere. When you know that Jesus is coming back, all the struggles that we're dealing with, all the hardships that you're dealing with, all the temptations, all the struggles, this this fight to live the Christian life, when you know in your heart of hearts from the scripture that Christ will step out of heaven one day, come back and right the wrongs, it is a strong motivation for you to persevere, not throw in the towel. When you know that Christ is coming back in all of his authority. Revelation 22, the very end of the Bible, says this. It's Jesus. Behold, I'm coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. Leave that slide up there just for one moment. They may have the right to two things. Tree of life, Entrance to the city. And what in the world are these two things? They're metaphors for heaven. When Christ comes back, there will be those that will have the right, the privilege, the honor of having access to heaven, to be able to be with Jesus, to be able to have the tree of life, to have the city gates. Now go back one slide for just a moment. How do you get in? How do you get in? How do you get that right? Do you earn it? Do you deserve it? Do you somehow work hard to get entrance? Do you you just kind of go up to heaven and barge the door open and say, here I am, look at my good works, God. Blessed are those who what? Wash your clothes. I got news for you. To get into heaven, you got to wash your clothes. You'd be like, okay, do I go down the laundromat, pay 50 cents and get the tide out and then I get to go to heaven? Is that what you're talking about? Your clothes represent your life. It's a metaphor for your life. Yours and mine's life, if we look at our life and we look at our clothes, they are stained, they are grimy, they are dirty, they are smelly, they are stinky because of all the sin that we have in our lives. And we carry around this sin, these dirty clothes, and we can try all types of detergents. 
You can try all types of detergents. You can, you can try good works to rub out. You can try church attendance to try to rub it out. You can try being a good person to rub it out. Oh, maybe if I get baptized, it'll rub it out. Maybe if I get confirmed, I'll rub it out. Maybe if I, if I help the poor, I can, I can get rid of these dirty clothes. And no matter how much you try to wash yourself, you never get clean. There's only one way that you can get clean, and that's by washing in the right type of detergent. And the detergent is not what you'd think. It's blood, the blood of the Lamb. Have you washed your life in the red, scarlet blood of Jesus and come out white as snow? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You see, when you wash your robes in Jesus, he makes you clean. He makes you pure. He makes you spotless. And because of what he's done, he grants you access into heaven. And Jesus says, I'm coming back again. For those of you that have not washed your robes, that should alarm you. Are you ready for that day? Are you washed? Are you ready? Are you going to be able to face Jesus on that day because you've trusted him? For those of us that have trusted him, for those of us whose robes have been washed, it's not a day of fear. It's a day of joy as we wait in expectation for our Christ to come back. So what's the ultimate hope of Daniel 7? Here's the hope. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. He's sitting there, not panic-stricken because he's all-sovereign. He's given all authority to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who's conquered through his death, burial, and resurrection. The kingdoms of this earth may grow from bad to worse. Gruesome beasts will come and go. There'll be opposition, there'll be persecution, there'll be trials, there'll be hardships. But in all things, we're to keep our eyes fixed on the throne room of heaven, upon that Christ who will step out of that throne room of heaven, come back to earth, make all things right. He reigns supreme. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Daniel 7 ends with hope in the midst of all that's going on in this earth. And let me just tell you something. There is no newsflash that our world is getting crazy. You look around at what's going on in our world right now. I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet. I'm a pastor and a son of a pastor. And I don't have any magic wand or magic eight ball or, you know, I'm not into end times prophecy that much. But there are events going on in this world right now that make you stop back and wonder, are we just a little bit closer to the end? Obviously, we're closer than we were yesterday. And tomorrow, we're going to be even closer. So are you ready? Are you ready because you've washed your life in the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you to bow your heads.